Welcome to the Zen Stoic Path. On this episode, we have a very special guest. We have Mark Von Muser. Now, Mark is an incredibly influential figure in my life and a person who had changed the trajectory of my life as I knew it when I met him. So I actually met Mark when I was going for my first job in the coaching industry. I was applying for one of the largest coaching companies in the world, and Mark was the director at the time. Now, I was the youngest and least experienced person in the room, but Mark gave me a shot as I went through the interview process to be a part of this company. Now, ever since then, I have been on quite a trajectory when it came to my coaching, and Mark was the one who gave me that shot in the beginning because Mark believes that his purpose in life is to see the greatness in others until they see it themselves, and it was no different with me. Mark saw something in me that I didn't see in myself until I decided to start seeing it, and then once I did, my life changed forever. And I have him to thank, and I am so honored to be able to bring him on this show and share his wisdom with you. Mark is an absolute master when it comes to influence and sales, but the really beautiful thing about the way that he teaches and serves his clients is that Mark believes in selling from a heart-centered place. He believes that selling is serving, and he has been in the sales industry for over 35 years and has helped his clients drum up over a billion dollars in sales in order to actually help to impact and change the world in a positive way. So I'm excited and honored to be able to share this wisdom with you and this amazing conversation that I have with Mark Von Muser. Enjoy the show. Mark, it is so great to have you on this show, man. I've been wanting to have you on the Zen Stoic Path for a couple of years now, <laughs> even, even when I had the old version of the show. And for the listeners who don't know who you are, you are one of those people in my life that I would not be where I am without you because the first time I had the opportunity to have a job as a coach with a, a large company, you gave me a shot despite me being the youngest and least experienced person in the room at the time. And that opportunity that you invited me into changed the trajectory of my life forever and allowed me to truly live in my purpose. So I wanted to start this podcast just by thanking you for this like very full circle moment that we're getting to experience now. Well, thank you for that, Victor. I, I so greatly appreciate it. I remember when I saw you and part of what came to me is I wanted people and, and people that I saw that could be light warriors that could stand in their own truth and could go ahead and be a pillar of light for the dark. You stood out a mile away. A blind man could see your power and your, your light. So from that standpoint, I, I thank you, but it's like you were easy to see. And it's like I told you, you were far much more powerful than you could even see back in the day. And the way you have honored me, I want you to also know I see the greatest gift you've given back to me was watching you step out into your truth and stepping out and sharing your light with other people. That's that's why I do it. And you have absolutely exemplified that. So I want to give the big love right back to you for for stepping into the truth. Thank you, brother. Thank you. I I very much appreciate the reflection and this opportunity for us to have this conversation. I know you're up to some really cool things. So I wanted to start this podcast by asking you, what are you most excited about right now? What's, what's, uh, what are you enjoying most about the path that you're on? Uh, I'm so excited. Uh, I'm the people ask me, how am I doing? How am I doing? I just left a company that I helped build a hundred million dollars where we had huge impact on businesses and transformation. It was a really amazing experience. We showed people how to make seven figures online um, did amazing things, created countless millionaires, 5,000 businesses taught them. And, and it was so fulfilling, but the mission was bigger. And one of the things that I saw out there was right now, people are struggling, they're suffering, and they're living way below their greatness. Now, 
There's lots of other programs out there, but most of them are forced. Most of them are, you know, make your move, work harder, make more calls and this whole drive and they're missing flow. And what came to me was why I wanted a bigger platform was my purpose has always been the same thing to help others identify, inspire, and awaken the greatness within them until they own it themselves. That's why I'm here. All of my extra superpowers, they go into support that. Seeing greatness like in you, doing everything I could to activate it till you saw it and owned it yourself. And then you, you've done, gone out and paid it forward. And so what came to me is in this time of need is that right now my purpose is over, I am launching a program tomorrow called 111 Days to Greatness. Everything I've learned over the last 48 years of studying human optimization, human behavior, what's the difference between somebody struggling and a billionaire? What's the difference when somebody catches fire and goes supersonic? And we're, for 111 days, I'm going to be sharing that with a group and creating a powerful egregory where you're seen, you're supported, and you're getting the skill set you need to thrive. And so everything you watch me train, we've elevated to a whole new level. And I've got an entire amazing group of, of world-class coaches that are here. We're going to activate your purpose, activate your greatness, and show you how to live your dream life. So that's really what I'm excited about right now. Um, and it's a whole lot of fun. And then the crazy part of it too, people are like, oh, are you charging $10,000 for it? Oh my God, this is easily, because that's where I was in the high ticket space. And I'm not, mm. I'm charging $111. I just want just enough skin in the game. So you show up. That's it. This is about building that army of light warriors I've talked about. This is about finding people that know there's another level, people that are frustrated because they're not earning the, what they want. They're not living what they want. The relationships aren't what they want and helping them rapidly change the trajectory of their life like you talked about to start. So that's really what we're up to. And within that cauldron container, I'll be, I'll be launching you know, Sales Alchemy, which is about how to sell from the heart with integrity so both people win and creating insanely ridiculously and high enrollment rates. My strategies about heart-driven selling already have already sold over a billion dollars worth of coaching and consulting uh, for our clients. That's a lot of coaching. That's a lot of new clients oh, and yeah. it feels good. And so we're going to change the trajectory in the, in the industry on sales as well. But right now it's about getting that army of light warriors so that we can really take and change the world because the world needs it now more than ever. Most definitely. I mean, I, I get chills as you share this because it's so aligned with what I'm seeking to do in the world and the whole reason for being. And I think it's just, it's really a brilliant thing to help somebody to see their own greatness by seeing it in them first. I noticed that sometimes the, the very difference between somebody who is, for example, like you were in the high ticket space, the very difference between somebody who's charging $5,000 for a coaching program versus $50,000 is literally their own belief and faith in the, the in, in their capacity to deliver that. And that's, yes. that's the starting point. And if people are unable to see that in themselves, they're not going to be able to make the impact that they're truly destined to make. So my question for you in response to that is what, what prevents a person from seeing their own greatness and what can they do to begin to start seeing that? Great question. So it, it goes all the way back to when we've been programmed and conditioned as kids. So when you were there, the, the, uh, our school systems are doing the best they can. They tried to do it as well. But what they've done is they've really bred out excellence and they bred in complacency and, and um, basically blending in. They're training people to blend in. I don't believe that's the best way. I think that, and again, you and I talked about this back in the day. 
they, even when I was a kid, I was two, three, four grade levels ahead. Well, they did not push me. They just wanted me to come back and then sit quietly. Even though I did the entire year's worth of work in the first month, I was done. And then I had to sit quietly and they didn't challenge me. They didn't help me go or go because I was supposed to blend and go at the pace of the slowest student there. And so life has happened. Boys on the right, you go wait your turn. Girls on the left, you get to go in first today. Raise your hand before you go to the bathroom. Raise your hand if you want to speak. No, we're not going to ask questions now. And we've been programmed. And then we have the cultural uh, input. Then we have the religious input. Then we have the political and the control inputs. And what's happened is piece by piece by piece over the course of our growth in those first seven years when we can't identify who we are, what we are, where we're trying to develop who we are, it's already been beat down to less than great. And so what happens is that by the time you become an adult, what happens now is now you're a, a reflection of the hundreds of thousands of times you've been knocked down below your greatness. And in order to survive, you learn coping mechanisms. So you're not out there speaking your truth. You're afraid because if you do, you're going to be judged. You're going to be attacked, even though you know a truth is there. And there's countless studies on this where they know something's wrong, but they're not going to do it. You know, that study they did where they shock people with pain, but they are told that you have to do it. And all of a sudden the person keeps shocking the other person. They know what was wrong, but they, they're so compliant and they're trained what to do. And if we're going to change the world to make it better, we need to activate it. So this, when we work with people, like you mentioned, $5,000 program, it's, it's also, you have to be in alignment with you and the ability, but there's one other component people forget. You need to look at the lifetime value of that transformation because you could deliver, but if you don't see this as a lifetime transformation, you're still going to have a hangup. Now, if you go back to all of the programming you've had from your parents, your church, all the people about money is the root of all evil, that rich people take advantage of the poor, that, that if you're one of those people where you're, you're a money grubbing, you know, whore, and all of a sudden you're going to have a negative association at your deepest core that you might not even be aware of. You will never be able to accumulate wealth because the associations that are programmed in your brain and your spirit, they're going to block you every step of the way. And you'll never be able to get $5,000, even if your program's worth 50,000, because you think, oh my God, I'm not that kind of person. I'll give you an example. Helped a client who was a yoga instructor who was used to getting paid $10 a session. Beautiful human being. I mean, we're talking, you could not meet this woman and fall in love with her. And we started coaching her. We got her going. We got her going. Got her up to $116,000 in cash collected per month. $116,000 for a yoga instructor because we showed her how to articulate a lifetime value for helping you to understand how to be the calm in the storm of anything. And we built a program and every month she was only spending $13,000 in ads. That's a 10X return to make her money, right? Wow. Just a little bit under, but then that's pretty damn good. Oh yeah. And she was melting down every month, literally sobbing and crying, going, what are, what are my clients going to think if they think I'm this person? What is my husband going to think? What am I going to do? What if they find out I'm making this kind of money? And she was only, we only, as soon as she left our, our support, she went right back down to $10 a session because that was the inner thermostat that she was wired for. Everything above that made her feel uncertain because she did not own it internally. She did not have a relationship with money that was congruent. She did not see the lifetime value and it imploded. And so that's what I mean. These are very powerful forces and I honor you because you work a lot in this space as well. Mm -hmm. Most definitely. I mean, uh, th this is uh, no different than I remember every time we used to have conversations. I had like chills the entire time because <laughs> everything just lands and resonates in such a way. 
And one thing that I think is is really powerful in in what you were sharing in this training that we just did, uh, the Liberation mm-hmm. Coaching Academy. We have an entire day dedicated to language and language constructs and how those constructs keep people trapped in those realities. And we send out some pre-training audios. We talk about the intentional use of language as a way of essentially priming the students before they actually come into the container. And one of the audios, one of our trainers is saying, is talking about the etymology of the word humble. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people associate this really positive uh, connotation to the word humble. And yet, what if we go back to the etymology of it, it means to put one's face in the dirt. And people get rewarded for hiding themselves, rewarded for, for essentially playing small. And if we go back to the actual, like the, the ancient Hebrew root word for what inspired that and where the wires got crossed, before the wires got crossed, rather, it is from the word anavara, which means to take up one's God-given space. And yet the wires got crossed somewhere along the way and essentially rewarded and encouraged people for playing small. And a lot of this, like you said, is programmed into us before we are even able to realize it from that period of zero to seven, where we are essentially borrowing the nervous systems of everyone around us, not, not not having our own scaffolding and and being able to do that. And I know language is something that you are very familiar with in the, in the work that you've done. What, what role do you feel like it plays in somebody being able to recognize that greatness in them? Or like, how, do, how does a person change the way that they speak to themselves or to others to begin to unravel some of those stories, like in the case of that, that woman that you were just speaking about? So it's an interesting concept and question. You're absolutely right, because there is an absolute correlation. If you start thinking in terms of frequency, okay, Every word carries a frequency. It carries a charge in us. For example, if I call you something as well, uh, a really bad word, right? You can pick whatever that is. That can trigger a response in you. And now the frequency of everything about you is anger, let's say. Just one word. Mm -hmm. I can get you so off your game right off the bat. And again, good athletes do this, by the way. Top athletes, when they're wrestling or they're in football, and they're, they're whispering in your ear something to get you out of your game, to get you angry. Because words affect us. They affect our nervous system, sometimes to a point where you cannot resist and you don't even realize it's happening. And so what happens about words, it gets worse. We run anywhere between 30 and 50,000 thoughts in our in our brain constantly. And most of these, according to the people that study it, 70 to 95% are disempowering, meaning, oh, I'm such a loser. God, why am I always doing this? And what happens is we're stacking the wrong frequency and repeating it thousands and thousands of times. Now, when you get to the brain processing, the way the brain is wired, those neural pathways become very strong. When they're attached to emotion, like for example, if I say loser, I'm a loser. God, why am I doing this? And I'm saying that in my head a thousand times a day, every time I, I, I mess up, every time I don't make a breakthrough call, every time I don't get the sale, every time I screw up at home, these get really freaking strong and they're the default. And I'm broadcasting that frequency to the world just around the words that I have. And what happens though, is whatever I'm vibrating, I am going to attract. So I'm going to attract more incidences that prove I'm a loser. I got a speeding ticket. I'm the only one there. There were five people speeding. I got the ticket. I forgot my keys. I forgot to follow up on a client and I lost $10,000, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden, all I have is those words are broadcasting a frequency. The problem, something we talked about before, It creates a prison you don't even know you're in. Mm. When I 
challenge people on this and we'll hear a word like, oh, I'm going to try. Okay, let's break down. I'm going to try. Oh, I'll do my best to be there. Oh, well, we'll see if I can do it. These are already quitting in advance. At least if you say I can't, you've already committed. But I think try is even worse. And you don't even realize how you're seduced into these words. And what you're really doing is shutting down your greatness. You're shutting down your ability to do the impossible. Well, Victor, I'll try and make it. I'll try and see if I can do it. What that really means is I don't even have the courage to say I'm not going to come. You're not going to be there anyway. But when you intentionally understand how language impacts the nervous system, you can use it to your advantage. This is part of that rule book that you don't ever get unless you go out and seek it. You're not taught in school. I don't care. I, I had a client that had five PhDs. He was not aware of this. I had another client, which was a PhD in psychology. She did not know this. She was from Harvard. She did not understand this. It was not taught. What we're talking about here is one of the most powerful ultimate brain hacks and more importantly, life hacks, but it's the powerful intentional use of language and energetically how it affects our results. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, just the constructs that we create for ourselves with our language alone. We, mm -hmm. the, way, the way I've always shared this with students is that every word that we use points to an internal representation in our minds of reality itself. And so the meaning of the word is not the word itself, but what it points to and what our construct is and how, how it exists in our mind. So like you said, if we're calling ourselves a loser and it's pointing to this internal representation of what we would consider to match that word, then our unconscious mind is going to follow that. And Correct. more it's repeated, right? With repetition, things become normalized. That normalization of that word and that internal representation uh, essentially gives our minds the instructions of how to be in the world. And when Correct. we're taking that kind of lead or that kind of instruction from the identity beliefs that are essentially being programmed in by ourselves and creating our own personal prison, then we right. start to embody that. I, one thing I, I think is really interesting that you shared in the, the previous example with the, the yoga instructor is that her inner thermostat said that she was worth $10 a session. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I've noticed is when we succeed or when we have a challenge or a failure or a hiccup or so, of some sort, we always end up coming back to not what we are aspiring to consciously, but mm -hmm. more so what is normal to us. Like what have we normalized in our life? How have you seen people normalize their challenges and their problems in a way that has gotten in the way of their greatness? And what can a person do to figure out what they've normalized or what they're tolerating that's actually keeping them from being the person that they're meant to be? It's a really great question. We got some multi-layered answer and we got to unpack it. Okay. So first and foremost, the answer to your question is about first and foremost is about um, society gives a lot of social currency to victimhood. And so what happens though, is it's like right now, because the people get so much currency for being a victim and doing nothing, they're looking to out victim each other. Well, I've got this color. I've got this gender. I've got this. I've got this. I've got this. I've got this. I didn't go here. And I had bad parents. And what's happening is they're going ahead and they're stacking this victimhood. And so what happens when you're in that trap, the minute you accept victimhood, even if you're right, by the way, I'm not going to say that you might not be discriminated. I'm not might say it's not life's not fair. I'm not going to say you didn't get a raw deal. But if you accept it, you're done. It's like when I know you're challenging like me, neither of us is really tall, right? And so guess what? We've been underestimated. We have to work twice as hard as tall people just to go ahead and score a basket, just in, to be seen as an equal. We've had to deal with that. So we can either bitch about it or we can become better. You don't get both. 
And so what's happening, part of my passion in life is to help people find the real truth. Mm -hmm. I've helped every color become millionaires. I've helped every gender. I've helped every type of sexual preference become what their dream is. But if they stay in the victimhood of it, they never, ever move because that's all they have. So it's really, really tricky. You got to rise above. If you came from a poor family, let a, fa a, a family legacy come from you. Why don't you change the cycle? And so I've had the blessing to work with billionaires. And what I can tell you is they didn't have it easy either. It's not like they were given $10 million and now see what you can do with it. These were broke people. These were people from dysfunctional families. These were people that rose above the, the truth that's there. You don't think Oprah had challenges? I mean, she was not an attractive person. She even said she was overweight and ugly. Her words, not mine. You can get pissed at, at her own quote. And so when that happened, how did she become a billionaire? Uh-oh. How about Spud Webb? Spud Webb is too tall to play with giants. He's a five, seven guy like us. And he made it to the NBA. Mm. You don't think he had to work harder than a guy that was six, nine with a 40 inch vertical. Of course he did. But if all you have, he was so connected. His, his voice was so strong in his head. He was so connected to that dream of making the NBA and he did the impossible. I believe that's available to everyone here on the planet. If you can disconnect from the, the victim, you know, victim porn that they're shoving down people's throats. They want us below our greatness. The mainstream media and these different people that are pumping out this bullshit, they want us distracted. They want us divided. They want us fighting with each other. That way they can rape and pillage at the top. My goal is to activate enough people at the front line so we create a new, like you said, a fire of awakened human beings. Mm -hmm. Where I don't, I look across, I don't care what your gender is. I don't care what your color is. We're all in it together. I know the Russian loves his family as much as I love mine. He's not my enemy. I know the Chinese love their family as much as mine. What if we all rise up? 99% of us can trump the 1% who control everything. And what happens is I just want to do everything we can so that people can step into their greatness. And that's really a big part of it. That's right. That's right. It, everything that you're sharing right now reminds me of the Marianne Williamson quote that mm -hmm. our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate, but that we are powerful beyond measure. And I remember Absolutely. the first time I heard that, I didn't understand it. <laughs> like I, I think the first time I heard it was probably... 12 years ago or so. And I didn't get it. I just thought it was this like, you know, inspiring, uplifting thing to say, right. like it just sounded poetic. But then I started to realize that when we truly claim our power, we essentially trade in all of the victimhood because we give our power away yeah. in one or th one of three ways. We give it away to circumstance, other people or thoughts. Yep thoughts about ourselves, falsehoods yes. that we engage in and reclaiming the power back while it sounds appealing on the surface can be a very tough sell for, for a lot of people is they get rewarded. They have this secondary gain from being in their victimhood, from allowing themselves to be at a disadvantage or not having that power. And I think it's really a, a beautiful experience to watch somebody reclaim that power and step yes. sovereignty. Because that is where not only do they change themselves, but their change impacts everyone around them and creates this ripple effect. Exactly. Yeah. I'll give you an example on that. So a, a friend of mine, a client as well, beautiful, beautiful woman, African-American woman. Um, she was abused. She was raped. She was uh, attempted murder on her. And she was dumped in a ditch like a piece of, a piece of used, used trash. And she did not stay there. This lady today makes... 
probably 10, $20 million a year. This woman has a PhD. This woman became a major in the army. This lady now spends the, her life awakening other people to their greatness. She had everything you could claim to as a victim and reason to be upset and not trust and every single thing. The question is not whether or not it was fair. It was not. How did she rise above? That greatness was in her and all that darkness did to her is awaken her greatness. The depths of your darkness are converse to the heights of your light, but only when you are willing to give up the victim and claim the muscle. You can't have both. Mm -hmm. And what happens is watching her step into her power, there's nothing more rewarding. And it's like, who could we be if we stopped playing the petty and bickering at the ground level and started stepping into our power? Now, here's something why most people don't want to do it. Because they get so much currency out of doing nothing other than throwing the victim card. They don't have to change. They don't have to do the work. They don't have to take it and figure out something and go serve other people. So as long as they can do that, they're going to get a little bang for their buck. It's a small bang, but oh boy, that's why I'm broke because men are pigs. That's why I'm broke because it's not fair. The rich get richer. It's not, it's not that because people don't like women. People don't like men. People don't like short people. People don't like ugly people, whatever it is. And what happens is you get trapped in that prison. And for every, everything you have, there's 10 people out there that overcame it and became successful in their own way. So it's a choice. You can't have both. You're either going to fight for your freedom and pay the price, or you're going to sit and pay the price of poverty and keeping a victim mentality. I mean, not, not, not a, a tough choice. <laughs> no. And it's tough because to your point magnitude of you've been programmed to accept this from the time you're a kid. That's the problem. It's deep woven in you. Mm -hmm. and I mean, before we could even decide who I want to be, I was already told who I was supposed to be. And then it was conditioned. They wanted compliance out of me. I was not meant to be compliant. I challenged every rule. I challenged when I'm playing little league. I challenged the call. Are you kidding me? You know, the strike zone up, it's from the knees to the chefs. That was over my head and you called it a strike. I was calling him out as a kid. Mm -hmm. And it's like, but I was constantly pushed down, you know, blend in Mark. Don't, you know, yes, you're, you're four years ahead, but that doesn't matter because we got to make everyone feel good instead of like leading from the front and awakening people's greatness. So I'm not the only one alone in this deep inside everyone here, guys, you have to realize it is seductive to go ahead and play the victim card. If you heard my background, I had alcoholic parents. I had abusive, emotionally abusive parents. I moved 14 times in 14 years because we were evicted every time. I had all sorts of shit. I had my workout partner commit suicide. I had, had you name it, my dad died, my mom died. I mean, you name it, I probably died. I had to lie to the sheriff because my dad was too drunk in the back. We were getting evicted. And I have people that want to throw that on me and go, oh, that's so unfair. How horrible. I wouldn't change a thing. I built muscle every time because of it. My parents did the best they could. They were a train wreck. But that's also part of why I have context. And that's part of why now, because I want the victory that comes, the muscle that comes when I can forget, when I realize that I didn't, couldn't have built the muscle without that experience. It was hard. And my shit is minimal compared to some of the other ones I know. Okay. So it's like, man, we all have had a tough road. But I don't want you to sit in it. I don't want you to constantly, my parents did this. That guy did this. She did this. Because that's where you get stuck. I think this is a really key point here that uh, many people will equate the idea of responsibility to fault. As in like, oh, so are you saying that all that stuff that happened in my life is my fault? And the answer is no. It's like there's a massive mm -hmm. difference between responsibility and fault. 
I, I love giving this example when I share this is if you threw a gathering at your home and somebody came over and they knocked over a potted plant, made a huge mess. Was that your fault? No, but it happened in your home. So it is your responsibility to clean up. And I, the same goes for any of these things that have happened in our lives. And I think the reason why you've been able to have the impact that you have on people, Mark, is that you've always taken responsibility just no, no matter how tough these circumstances have been. I remember, you know, in the, mm-hmm. in the company that I met you in prior to that, you were sharing with me that you were experiencing cancer prior to, to going into that. Mm-hmm. Would you right. uh, mind sharing a little bit about that experience and like what that taught you? Sure. Now this gets back again to words. Let's get back to words and energy and frequency. Okay. There's something called a primary question. And the primary question is that theme in your brain that you're going to say a thousand times a day, right? Anything that happens, anything that happens, you're going to go ahead and put on a set of lenses and you're going to put on a set of lenses. And now all of a sudden, like I'm a loser or I'm not good enough or um, mine, mine was, are you effing kidding me? Okay. I'm trying to be polite here. I would say that a thousand times a day. Are you effing kidding me? Do you not understand what the white lines are in the parking lot? It's not hard to get in the middle. You don't take up two. Now I have, and I get upset. Somebody, Hey, Einstein, you know what the thing is on the left of the steering wheel? It's called the blinker. You might try and use it. You might want to go ahead and get over before 10 feet before you get off the freeway. And I get mad. Hey, genius. You're in the fast lane. You're in the passing lane and you're 20 miles below the speed limit. You know, and it's like, you know, and I was upset about everything. I was angry because of that pre-programming conditioning. I was angry because I didn't know how to process that. I had a tough upbringing. I was angry because I had the amazing sports ability, but I wasn't six foot. Guys, I used to dominate in baseball, basketball, martial arts. Now they're six, four and I'm five, two, five, four. And I remember being angry, but all of this conditioned that primary question. I must have asked it a thousand times a day. Keep energy then that is a toxic energy. If you look at the emotional vibrations score, anger is one of the lower ones, not the lower. It's still better than apathy. Apathy is where you just quit. That's the lowest form of energy. Anger, at least there's a little spark, but it's toxic. And that became my toxic home. I was very successful with it in life, meaning I made a lot of money. I had cool shit, but I was pissed at everybody. Is it so hard to return a phone call? Is it so hard to show up on time? Are you effing kidding me? And I did that a thousand times. Next thing you know, I found out I had a lump in my crotch and all of a sudden it was on the right side. And next thing you know, I had a bigger one on the left. And all of a sudden I'm like, this is really hurting. So I went back to the surgeon. I had hernia surgeries. And then he goes, this is not good. And I was scheduled for a biopsy. And sure enough, they did took out 19 lymph nodes out of my crotch. And they, they, cause that's what they do for non-Hodgson's lymphoma. And it came back, uh, the biopsy came back first, uh, positive for, uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but there's 27 subtypes. So before they give you chemo and radiation, they got to determine which one it is. And it went from one to two, and then it was rap- it was rapidly growing. And I had surgery on Monday and they cut 19 of them out. And I firmly believe I ended up getting cancer because my core energy that I was keeping were those words I said a thousand times in a day. And it was an energetic match for cancer. Mm-hmm. Louise Hay did a lot of work on this. I don't think she's right on all of it, but there is a correlation between what you think over and over again, what you say in your head over and over again, what comes out of your worth over and over again. And the energy that creates, if it's a low frequency, it will create a different illness. Okay. So I had stage three non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and I had surgery on Monday. 
where they go and cut me open and then they cut out 19 lymph nodes and then they sew you up, but they let the lymph um, kind of reheal. They don't suture it all back up. So this was on Monday and on Thursday, I was in a Tony Robbins event in the back room and I was pissed. I was pissed off that I had cancer. I was pissed off at the chemical and the, the big pharma and, and the pharmaceutical companies and the business companies that put toxins in our environment. I was pissed at everybody, everything. Now I'm smiling, I can put it on, but my core vibration, and I remember watching Tony on stage, making his move and doing this. I'm like, screw you, buddy. You didn't create that. That's bullshit. And I'm just freaking pissed. And as I'm in the back row, every hour or two, my the uh, lymph would uh, pull up like a grapefruit size in my crotch. And then it would pop and it looked, I had khaki pants and it looked like I pissed my pants. Every one to two hours, everyone's jumping up. I was pissed. And when I was at my lowest, wishing I got hit by a car, there was a voice that popped up in my head and it was so loud, I could not deny it. I looked around to see who it was and there's nothing behind me but a 40 foot air wall. My sister was right next to me, jumping up, making her move in state. I was sitting here looking for a fight. And that voice came and it said, would you take the cancer for your girls? Like, what the hell? And it said it again with a more defiant, authoritative tone. It said, would you take the cancer for your girls? And I said, yes, without hesitation. And I felt like a rush come over me of gratitude. First time I felt grateful in a really long time. And I felt gratitude come over me. And then it came over me and it said, somewhere a parent doesn't get that choice. Wow. And I started to cry. And in that moment, I started finding gratitude. And it was really weird. But then the second thought I had was, and I have a $100,000 car. I can still have that. Because I remember I didn't have, a, I had a shitty car for most of my life. And then I remember thinking, and the radio works. Because I remember years where I didn't have a radio that worked. Weird connection, but it was like started to flood weird, random shit that I'm grateful for. And then it came to me and it said, I, I remember saying that again, somewhere a parent doesn't get that choice. And I found gratitude. And in that moment, I decided that I don't know if I have a month to live, six months to live or a year or maybe five, I don't know, but I'm going to commit to my purpose from this point on. I knew what I was supposed to do. I just was afraid to do it. I was afraid I'd get out there and fail. Why would they listen to me? I didn't go to Harvard. Why would they listen to me? I'm only five, seven. Why would they listen to me? I'm just a street kid. And all of a sudden it just flooded me. And one thing after another, next thing you know, I changed that primary question from, are you effing kidding? Dude, what am I grateful for? What's beautiful right now? How does God want me to win? What does God want me to do? And all of a sudden my primary question changed. My frequency changed. I obsessed on gratitude. I'm pretty high strung and I'd get stuck in traffic. I would be losing my shit. You want to watch somebody get pissed. I was the guy sitting in traffic. Oh my God. Now I'm sitting in traffic going, I'm not getting a speeding ticket today. I'm a lucky SOB. And then I'm thinking to myself, I can return calls. They can't blame me. I'm in traffic. And all of a sudden the same thing that used to set me off now, I'm good because I'm in gratitude, not the action of gratitude, the feeling of gratitude. And all of a sudden, long story short, I kind of, I didn't forget about the cancer because they're calling and trying to schedule and everything, but I was at peace with it. My sh energy shifted around it and I started living my purpose. And it was very quickly thereafter. I got a call from Tony. Uh, his company said, Hey, would you mind coming in and talk to us about the director coaching program training? You've trained a lot of the people. We have nothing but great things about you. I did not want to go. 
And all of a sudden, as I'm doing this, that voice came back. And about two months later, while they were waiting for the biopsy results, they resent it because they couldn't get the right deal. They sent it again to a second and a third uh, pathologist. Two months later, the doctor called me and he said, he's a scientist first and he's a healer second. He's waited 40 years to make this phone call. He's never been able to make it. But he says, we're changing your diagnosis to cancer-free. The only thing is we can't figure out why. He goes, I've sent it to the top pathologies in the country. We just can't figure it out, but we can't find it anymore in your body. And then he said, you're going to question whether you had it. He goes, trust me, you had it. The biopsies are black and white. There's, there's no gray area here, but the, we can't explain where it went and why. Well, I know why. Because we're energetic beings at our core. Words can change our frequency. Focus can change our frequency. Our Living our purpose changes our frequency. And having the courage to step out and do what you're doing and what other people that I work with are doing. And all of a sudden, if I'm going to serve my purpose, it was like God said, okay, good. You're on track. Now I'll, I'll take that away. Now go serve. That's why I'm here. That's why I speak the way I do. I don't have time to sugarcoat. I don't have that many Christmases left. I'm here to speak my truth. And if it resonates, great. I know we can get you and unlock something in you that's great so you can go live your purpose. And that's what I'm here to do. That's why in 111 Days to Greatness, I'm building that army of light warriors. And eventually we'll grow it to 144,000. And when I take my final breath, it's my legacy that I'm going to be most proud of. I'm going to see people like you stepping into your power, changing thousands of lives, not from ego, but because it's a calling. And you're going to be rich as shit because money is now is moving into people who serve. The Bernie Madoff days, the take advantage of the weekdays, they're gone. Now it's about who will serve, who will add value, who will help those that are in need. So it's a the game is shifting. And that's what I'm most excited about right now. Wow. That's a, that's an incredible story. And I, I just love the simplicity of gratitude and the profound effect that it can have on your entire being and the way that it can shift your frequency. And when we think about the principle of correspondence as above, so below as within, so without mm -hmm. you changed within and your outer world began to reflect that. Yeah. And it's it's incredible to see some of these types of healings take place. I I was fortunate enough to be a part of one of a healing like that with my with my own dad. You know, he had melanoma when I first began this type mm -hmm. of work, and he was one of my first clients when I do the liberation session where we clear all of somebody's emotional stuff. And the common thread between his transformation and yours is that gratitude was at the core of it when he was able to get into gratitude for his life, for his children, for the work that he has and make that connection with his creator within, I think it was less than six months. It was gone from his system completely. And he is mm -hmm. happier than I've ever seen him. Like, and that's why I love that. But that's why I'm so anti victimhood because oh yeah. you can't be grateful. If you're in victimhood, they're completely different energies. Completely. When you're in gratitude, for example, we, let's talk about privilege. What about American privilege? Would you rather be born in Ukraine? How about you, how about that part of it, China where you don't it can't say anything or you get arrested and disappear? Would you rather be born there? Would you rather be born in some of the countries where they shoot you because they don't like you? Would you rather be born here? We have it's not perfect, but we still have the best of everything and it could be better if people quit playing the victim card. But I forgot to tell you something. The reason I put these on is these are my blue blocker glasses and they have an orange hue. What happens when you have a primary question, 
it changes the way you see the world. Right now, you need to change your screen because you look really orange, Victor. And I am convinced in my heart, it's real. You look orange. What did you do? And I'm going to go through life pissed off because my lenses are pissed off and because my programming is pissed off. So everything I see is a justification of why life's so unfair. I have to take off the glasses and see it for what it is. And that's a hard thing because some people, all they have is the fact that they can go to that victim energy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but my spouse, my ex did this. My father did this. The government did this. The people discriminate because of this, because of this. And you're so much more than your circumstances. But if that's what you're going to gravitate to, you can't have your dream and your, 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 you know, victimhood at the same time. You got to pick one. You're going to pay a price no matter what. There's a price for poverty and there's a price for victory. That's it's right. a lot easier to be, go for victory. And, and, and you're going to do that by serving other people. The world benefits when you do that. So uh -huh. that's a big part of the calling. I agree. And it's, uh, it reminds me what you're sharing reminds me of a conversation. I had another guest on the podcast. Um, I'm not sure if you know him. His name is Marcus Aurelius Anderson. And wow. He, what a great name. Really cool. No. His grandfather named. Him. <laughs> and, yeah. Well, while I was interviewing him, he was talking about his book, which is called the gift of adversity. So this is a mm -hmm. guy who, you know, later in life decided he wanted to go into the army because it was something that he felt called to do, like a spiritual calling of sorts. It wasn't any ego reason. It was, he, he just felt called to do this. And like, this is where he needed to be. And while he was on the job, he ended up getting paralyzed from the neck down. And wow. he had done all the personal development stuff and studied stoicism and philosophy since he was a kid, obviously with a name like that, <laughs> you know, his grandfather really mm -hmm. was instilling this. And he was telling me that when he was sitting there in that bed, couldn't move. He was just pissed at everything mm -hmm. in the world. He was like, what was all of this for? Like, and then he started to focus on what he could really control and started to focus on what he was grateful for in that moment and started really tiny. And then eventually he got some movement in his finger. And then when he started to take on an attitude of hubris, the movement went away, he started mm -hmm. all over and he would, start to be grateful for these little things, start to be grateful for just being in that bed for being paralyzed. Mm -hmm. And so his gratitude stopped taking a preference for what he desired and started becoming unconditional for everything. Mm -hmm. And when he stepped into that unconditional gratitude, he gained all the function in his body back and rebuilt his life entirely. That's awesome. <laughs> um, that reminds me of, um, it's really interesting because that guys don't confuse. This might not always be easy. And I'll take you back two and a half years ago. Uh, we were just coming out of COVID. We just did an event in Miami at the ball Harbor Ritz Carlton had a fun. And then we went down to this beautiful, beautiful um, what's it called? Villa on the beach. I mean, like $10,000 a night type villa, right? Absolutely beautiful. And we're there first night in, I'm out at the water. It's like, I'm in the best shape of my life. I mean, I, started training and got really serious about my training. I could have been a fitness model at this point. I mean, I freaking was dialed in and um, we saw a party barge, you know, and we're like, oh shit, we just got out. We've been locked up for however long, two years or some crazy amount, whatever the lockdown was. And th there it is. So we got that. And it was a three platform level of party barge. You jump from the top. They had trampolines at the second and bottom level that you jump off the top onto the trampoline and jump in the water. They had slides, they had swings and the barge would come pick you up and then you go out in the water and then you go jump and do all the crazy stuff. 
Sounds good, they said. So I go out there and I'm so fired up. I had been training. I got my shit dialed in like nobody's business. Super, super excited about life and where we were. And I jumped off the top platform at about 15 feet down to about eight feet down below is the trampoline. And when I hit, it did not budge. It was like I hit cement. And as I did that, what happened was all of a sudden I uh, ruptured, I fell into the water. I ruptured my quadricep tendon my patella tendon and fraction, my patellas in multiple places. And so what happens is all of a sudden I found myself from the peak of peak per, um, my body has ever been to, I might not walk again. My legs were uh, deformed where they were almost ripping the um, ACL MCLs apart that my kneecap was way off track and it was incredibly painful. And in that moment, I started thinking, Again, because I had conditioned the gratitude. I conditioned possibility. I remember in there an excruciating pain where I could almost try not to pass out and throw up. I was back and forth between those two frequencies. But I remember thinking the two surgeons were on the beach. And, oh, yeah, it looks like he ruptured his quadricep and patella tending. This is guy's got to get him to the ER immediately. And I'm like, no, no, it's not that. I think it's just dislocated. I think I'll be back tonight. And even in that moment, I started looking for positivity because it had been conditioned. Now I get to the hospital, I go there and he goes, sure enough, diagnosis, wow, you really did it. And long story short, I'm sitting in a hospital bed away from my family because of COVID, they wouldn't let anybody come in. So I'm now alone. And a lot of them, the nurses were treating me like shit because I was the wrong color. And all of a sudden it's like, they're, they're literally being rude. The doctor was great, but the nurses had a chip on their shoulder about I was inconveniencing them. And I remember thinking though, in that moment, I remember thinking about how grateful I was that, that a, I had people to pull me out of the water, how grateful I was that, that I had a, a really shitty piece of chicken because I was starving and boy, they brought me chicken. I remember how excited I got when they brought in a fan because it was a hundred plus degrees with almost hundred percent humidity and no air conditioning. And they brought a fan. I remember how, how grateful I was. Then I was grateful for insurance. I was grateful that I had insurance because man, if I had this, this was over $250,000 in medical fees I didn't have to pay. And I remember thinking how grateful I was that I had an honest surgeon in Turks and Caicos who said, Mark, if this was my son, I wouldn't do it. I've done the surgery, but we don't have the facilities here. I will fight for you and get you back to America. You need a sports surgeon who does this for a living. Don't get a trauma surgeon. And he fought for me. How lucky is that? And they treated him with disrespect because he was, he was African-American. He trained in the U S and when he called the hospital in America, they treated him like he was a second rate surgeon. He was pissed. He's like, oh, really? I've trained at the best hospitals in the US and Canada. And he went to bat for me. It all fell in line perfectly. Then I got life flighted back. And they never send anyone uh, to the, the, they send them to the closest place in the US, which would have been Miami. But then I would have had to heal alone for six months to a year in a, in a medical facility. And however it happened, all of a sudden I got back to San Diego. And the first trauma surgeon, it was the trauma surgeon. The guy told me, do not let him do it because they're no offense. They're like trauma, not, not finesse. You need finesse if you're going to walk again. And it was bad enough that the surgeon who was kind of a jerk to me as well, he was a jerk to me. He's like, why are you here? And why did they fly him here? And he was all pissed. And then he said, I've done the surgery. I've only done one in the last three years. And, and I don't know what you expect. You're not going to walk again. Normally you'll never do martial arts. You can't run. This is, this is, and he was a total jerk. And it was enough uncertainty in him. So he called the one expert in San Diego. That's a knee expert. The guy who trains people on this, the guy who's at the front of the pack, he's done this over 40 times for the Padres, the, the San Diego chargers, 
to him, this was just another one. And he took over my case. And then all of a sudden it was like one miracle after another because I lived in gratitude. One gratitude feeling stoked on another one and another one and another one. And it was like, it changed. There were obstacles along the way. It took three days of getting no on the phone before we got to San Diego. They refused for three days until they finally, one person for whatever reason said, you know, you're right. That makes sense. Come to San Diego. And they paid for it. Wow. And so gratitude guys. Now there's a second piece of gratitude. That's critical. Energetically gratitude is healing energy. Gratitude, joy, passion, purpose, and love are all healing for the spirit and illness. You cannot be vibrating in that higher level and attract disease. So energetically, it's critical that you live in those higher frequencies, which is the exact opposite of what society is pushing us to. It's fear porn. It's you're not enough porn. It's a world's ending porn. And it's all those apathy, powerlessness. You don't make a difference and you should be a victim. Those are all low frequencies, which cause illness. Oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, it creates density in the body when you drop into those lower frequencies. And I, I love the fact that you discuss these energy frequencies and and the importance of them in terms of the actual reality, because if you're noticing unsavory results in your life and unsavory circumstances or things that you are not, you don't consciously want, right? it speaks to you what energy is actually present in the body. And Correct. your emotional state is your compass as to like where you're at on a regular basis. Have you ever heard the story of the, uh, the rainmaker? I have, but go ahead and tell it. So the, the Rainmaker story, I think it's really interesting. So Carl Jung and Wilhelm Reich are having this conversation in the town that Wilhelm was in, they were experiencing a drought and it put everything into disorder. So different people that they wanted to come and help tried all different kinds of methods, right? Some tried prayer, some tried, you know, scaring the the evil spirits away and all different types of methodologies. And then finally they, they found this old man who was a monk who they invited in. They said, we need to call the rainmaker. So he comes and he says, all I need is a small hut on the outside of the, of the town. And I just need that for, for three days. So he goes in the hut and he just stays there. And three days later, it begins to snow in a place where it doesn't snow. And Somebody ran up to him and they said, how did you make the snow? He said, I didn't make the snow. All I did was get into Tao. I got into being well-ordered myself. Your town was in disorder. I come from a place where everything is in order. So I needed to get myself in order. And then the rain came or the snow came. And it's this beautiful story of how powerful we are and how much our state actually affects the energy and the circumstances around us. Very much. And it's, I'll give you another example. Um, injuries are much more prevalent if you're pissed off, right? Mm -hmm. My daughter, who is a um, high level uh, competitive athlete, she was ranked in the top 25 in the nation among women, a uh, phenomenal, phenomenal runner. And one time she went to go meet a team to run with and they didn't wait for her right? They sent her the wrong address. She showed up, there was no one there. So then she showed up where, found out where they did meet and she shows up and she's pissed. Her unresolved trauma or her belief stack was that they did it on purpose and they didn't, but her belief was that they did. So she's fuming. And there was one other guy there who was the top athlete. He waited for her, but everyone else took off. She was going to run with her old friends and they didn't wait. So there was a wound there. And so she was angry. 
And so she went out running and I call it angry running. And she starts running and running and running and running and just taking it out on the trail. She got a stress fracture and couldn't run, lost her season. I mean, just like that. Stress fractures are normally repetitive injuries that happen over thousands of runs, you know, thousands of steps, slowly, you know, whatever. This happened almost instantly. And I remember another one when I was training under Tom Kurtz, you know, the stretching guy. And he talked about how your energy affects whether you're flexible or not. If you're tight and tense and angry, you're not as flexible. He was talking about it with a um, a master's degree in physiology from, from uh, Poland. And he's saying the same damn thing. So he was talking about, you know, getting in a peaceful mind, getting into these. That's a big part of what yoga is teaching. And that you got to get you right if you want the world to be right. And it's just like changing the glasses. If look at yourself and, and forget, suspend what's fair and what, what happened to you. Do you like where your life's at? Are you happy where you're at? Are your relationships giving you toe curling, time stopping sex? Are they giving you intimacy? Are your businesses thriving to a point where you're growing and people are flocking to you? Are you looking in the mirror and smiling going, I'm divine, divine lineage? Are you having the impact you want to have? And if the answer is no, then you got to look in the mirror. You got to decide, am I more committed to my challenges and what's not right? Or am I willing to change my thinking, change my self-talk and start looking and taking the next step so I can be the man or woman that I'm designed to be? You can't have both. And, and I'm not going to fault anybody that's had a tough road. I hear stories and that's, I hear stories of what people went through watching family members be murdered, you know, um, losing businesses, getting screwed and losing your entire life's worth because your accountant was a fraud or attorney was a fraud. There's some dark shit out there, but it doesn't have to be that way. But I want you guys to transcend because you don't build spiritual muscle in a vacuum. You build spiritual muscle by going through hell. And there's a great quote, and I don't remember who said it, um, but a calm sea never makes a great sailor. And so for people, you've seen this too. I've never seen anybody of worth, by that I mean a world changer, that did not have a tough upbringing, that did not overcome obstacle after obstacle. The reason they're able to change the world and become wealthy or because is because they overcame so much and built so much muscle. But you got to quit resenting it and being feeling sorry for yourself and use it and realize you're the strong one. It didn't break you, it awakened you. And the minute we make that transition, everything will start to change. I couldn't agree more. I mean, that was the start of my journey at seven years old. The passing of my mom is what essentially sparked all of it. Yeah, at seven? Seven. Yeah. <laughs> I found out on my seventh birthday. Uh, it happened the night before. And that was, I now look at as the greatest gift of my life. Like the gift that my mother gave me was seven years together. Mm -hmm. And her passing, I look at as her great sacrifice so that I may create and grow and live this purpose without that. It wouldn't yeah. have been the same. And it just, it, all of this is a testament to a principle that I always love to share with clients and students, which is it's not a, it, we don't play the hand of cards. We have any better by wishing we had different cards or by comparing our cards to someone else's. We play them best by focusing on what we actually have and how to use that to the best of our ability. And then if we pick up new cards, great, but we got to play with the hand that we have right now. Yep. Yeah. Something magical happened in my case when I stopped apologizing and being pissed off at my parents. Cause they did. If my dad, just as an example, 
my grandparents were multimillionaires back in the 20s and 30s, back when that was a lot of money. And my dad was a child movie star and he was a multimillionaire before he was 15. Okay. Back when that was a lot of money, he was, a, he was in 16 different movies. He had records. He was on every Twinkie sold in the country. He had, a, uh, was on the great Gildersleeve. He had all that and he had millions. My grandfather had millions. And if they, my dad had invested just 10% of his money, 10% of his money in real estate. They did a, a friend of his was at Rand corporation think tank and they calculated out back in 1980, his real estate would have been worth $250 million. That would be worth about five billion today, and because it was downtown, downtown Wilshire Boulevard in L.A., the downtown they could have bought it for pennies. My dad had the money, but no, my dad was an idiot with money. And not only that, but then my grandmother, uh, my aunt, my dad's sister, she started marrying a stock, and they sold all of the old old blue chips that are worth countless millions, and sold them all for penny stocks, and then they burned through probably about ten million dollars worth of net worth. And so they burned. So I was resentful. I was pissed off. I should have quote unquote come from money. I should have had 10 million, 20 million. I didn't, couldn't even go to college because dad didn't pay taxes. So I had to find a way around that. That set me back close to a decade. So I was pissed about how unfair that was. People that I was way smarter than now they got to go to law school. They got, they got loans. They could get scholarships. I couldn't because dad wouldn't pay taxes. So I had that chip on my shoulder. I had my height on my shoulder because it wasn't fair because I was a great athlete. And the other people who couldn't carry my jock strap are now going into the, these high level marsh, uh, uh, sports programs. And I was pissed about that. So I had a lot of chip on my shoulder. And I remember this was interesting, but a man that I really respect, Dick Duncan, he was my youth pastor in call, uh, high school. He could feel the pissed off I was. I had every right to be pissed. My parents were a train wreck. You know, uh, the, show up at my school functions, so slobbering drunk, making an ass of themselves and, you know, humiliating me as well. And then Dick looked at me and he said, he goes, Mark, he goes, you're a great athlete. Cause even then I was still better than almost everybody, even though they were bigger than me, but he could feel the chip. This was a four time all American in rugby. This was a man's man. And he said, Mark, if you were six, four, he goes, what kind of man would you be? I already knew the answer. I got to have been an asshole. I would have been the biggest shit talker on the planet. I would be the guy who gets the highest league average and I make everybody know it. I would be the guy that led the league in the whole state in rushing. I would be the guy that's the, and that's who I was. Even in martial arts, I was undefeated. I was 45 pounds and I was undefeated in high school unlimited. Do the math. 45 pounds is pretty freaking small. I was beating guys 180 pounds and lighting them up like a Christmas tree. I was phenomenal, but I was really tiny. And all of a sudden I knew, and then he asked me, he said this, he said, Mark, what do you think God's more concerned about your batting average or your impact on humanity? And I was like, wow. And in that moment, I stopped being resentful for my size. And I started to look at it differently. Like it was an advantage. And you and I've talked about this. And what was interesting was everywhere after when I made that shift, people would underestimate me and it was to their own detriment. They'd look at me in basketball and they, oh, this kid, okay, I'm not picking him. And I'd go out there and lead everybody in scoring, including guys on varsity. And in martial arts, I'd do the same thing. And then when buds and then seal training, and then these, these different things in the Navy, they'd look at me and laugh like, oh, I remember I was doing this one competition in boot camp. It's about a thousand people. All the companies pick their two athletes, the best athletes in there. And they have a Olympics. You do like five or six events and they had SEAL training there so they could prep every week. I was not allowed to prep because I had the largest Hall of Fame company in naval history. I was in charge of it. And so I couldn't do the training like SEAL training at the time. And we did this contest and I got selected and then I was the last one there. And 
first event was pull-up bars and everybody's around and uh, they go there and all the big guys, they're all six one, six two, looking good, strapping dudes. And it was pull-ups and they see me and they start making jokes. Oh, do you need help to get on the bar? Can we get him a stool? Somebody over here, get him this guy a stool. He needs help, right? So all of a sudden they go up and the first guy does 10 and he's feeling good. The next guy does 11. The next guy does 15. Next guy does 12. Next guy does about 14. One, they're all feeling pretty cocky. And they're still ribbing me for whatever reason, just they're picking on me like crazy. And so I jump up on the bar and I knock out 30. And while I'm up there, I looked to the seal who was running the event. I said, Hey, do I get extra points if I get to 50? He goes, get off the bar. So then they were like, what the hell? Who is this guy? And then I go in and now we're getting ready and we're going to changing out. And then we're going to do the swim. And the guys start talking shit again. And they're like, I'm not worried about pull-ups. Pull-ups don't matter. I ran, I swam in college. I swam in high school. I was on a water polo. I was varsity wall polo for three years. And they're all talking about how good they are in the pool. I've been training with the SEAL program here while I'm here for the last two months. I'm going to crush this. And then they're picking on me like, oh boy, do you want help? Do you want your floaties? Shit like that. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, we do 500 or a thousand meters and we're going, right? Well, I not only won, I won by over 50 meters. I won and I got out of the pool and dried off. And the one guy who was the biggest lap smack talker, he comes up and he looks and he hits the wall and he thinks, oh my God, I did it. And he's like celebrating. And I walk up and I say, hey, when you're done, get out of the pool because we got to do the next. He's like, what? How's that possible? And then we had to go do the shot put. And I'm the smallest guy. And the first one, it was best out of three. And first one, I had the least amount of time. And they're talking about, oh, could we get him the girl ball? Could we get him the girl shot? Oh, could we give him an extra 10? I mean, they're talking shit. And then our female athlete, she was a collegiate at Ohio State champion in shot put. She pulled me aside and showed me what I was doing wrong and helped me do it. I beat her and I beat every one of them as well. And I won that event. And then we did another one, a sprint. And I killed everyone in the sprint. Now everybody was focused on the last one, which was the run. And the guy that ran in college let everybody know. And the guy that was on cross country in high school, he let everybody know. And the guys were all positioning about they're going to kick my ass on this one. And the entire company on both sides, a thousand people all lining around the whole thing and the bleachers and everything. And we go around for two miles and I'm in last place. And then I'm in the middle. And then I'm in the bed and then I broke every single one of them. And I won by over a hundred yards running away. And that scenario, guys, it didn't happen until I was willing to make my, who I was a strength. And that was when it shifted. And it's, and again, I have to be fair. I did talk a lot of shit back because again, I was really good at that too. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> That's part of the fun. And it, exactly. It, it really mirrors a lot of my experience, right? Like being, the smallest guy in the room when it came to martial arts and the sports that I competed in as a kid and knowing that I, I not only needed to work harder, but also smarter and use yeah. again, use the cards that I had to my right. advantage. And this, this conversation actually reminds me of a story that you shared with me the first night that we met that left a mark in, in a very positive way, which was the story of the leopard. And I was wondering mm -hmm. if you would mind sharing that story for the audience here. Sure. This was, a, um, this was a vision that came to me. And again, you know, in that moment when you're, you're not dreaming, right? You're not dreaming, but you see like a movie unfold. And it was, it was the most amazing thing. And I remember like, like, okay, I'm kind of freaked out because it was so clear. And the mess, the message was so big. 
And it was about, I was, I was transported to Africa and I'm sitting there and I'm watching and, and watching these little leopard cubs play and they're playing like tag and cat games and they're doing this. And the parents were sitting up on there, the mother and the father, and then the leopards are there. And without knowing one of the leopards, and again, I believe it was me. Okay. I was like in it and ran and hid and we're playing hide and seek. And then all of a sudden a pack of, of lions came by and killed all three of them my sibling and my parents. And I watched it happen and I was scared and I hid in the cave. I hid where they couldn't see me. And I remember thinking that oh, I was so scared. And then I remember after about three days, I was starving. It's, even though I was sad and crying and scared, I remember seeing that and the pack of lions happened to walk by again. And at the back of the pack of lions were the baby lions and they had spots just like me. And I remember going though, and I came out and I kind of looked and they said, hey, come with us. And I went out. And I had some food for the first time in a very long time. And I hung out with them for a little bit. And very quickly, they lost their spots. And they started making fun of me to a point where I ran back into the cave. I ran back up the hill and back to my hiding spot. And I hid. And then I remember I started getting hungry again. And I was like, I didn't know what to do. So I went out and climbed to this one tree right next. And I climbed to the top of the tree. And it just so happened it was one of the trees that had the thorns that the or giraffes, the, the, the giraffes would come up. And the giraffes would come and they're eating. They go, what's wrong? And I said, I'm hungry. And they go, what are you hungry? You're sitting in the best tree in the entire savanna. These leaves are delicious. And it said, so it said, I tried to eat them and I almost threw up. And then they laughed and they made fun of me because I didn't understand good cuisine. And then I ran back to my cave. More and more desperate, wondering where do I fit in? And so I ran out into the middle of the savanna. And I didn't know where I belonged. And I remember there and there were cheetahs and they had, there were baby cheetahs and they had spots just like me. And they said, come with us. We're going to go on a kill. We're going to go out dinner. And they went and they ran and they ran and they chased down a, a weaker gazelle. They had it. And by the time I caught up, I was huffing and puffing. And I remember looking at the, and they said, you don't get to eat. You didn't help. You're too slow. And I remember running back up into my, my, my spot, isolated and afraid. And something magical happened. That night when it was dark and I came back out and I realized that my spots were meant for a reason. My ability to climb in a tree was for a reason. And I went out and hunted by myself. I went out and did what I did. And I was able to take that, that gazelle, that wounded gazelle and take it to the top of the tree. And I realized in that moment, the minute I stopped trying to be someone else, the minute I started to own my spots and own my divinity was the minute I became true perfection. My spots were my perfection the whole time. I just didn't know it. And I remember telling you that because that was the same thing for me. It doesn't matter if I'm not as big as the lion. It doesn't matter if I'm not as fast as a cheetah. It doesn't matter if I'm as gangly and tall as a giraffe. What matters if I own my spots? Because I can do magic. I can do things the lion can't. I can do things that they can't, but not if I'm trying to be a lion. And that was the point of the story. Yeah. It chills again, like the first time I heard it eight years ago. <laughs> and uh, it inspired this tattoo, which is a snow. Nice. So I, I love it. Thank you. Yeah. After I, I heard that story from you, I think it was like maybe three months later, mm -hmm. I started looking at the symbolism of the leopard because I couldn't get that story out of my head. Like it riveted me and it, I, I felt more seen by hearing that story than I have in a, in a very long time. So I started looking up the symbolism of a leopard and it resonated, but not 
quite not not 100 and then at the bottom there's this little link at the page it said you may want to check out snow leopard so i clicked on snow leopard and the words just like spoke to me right back and it was the symbolism of the snow leopard is working in silence and allowing your results or your success to essentially make the noise because every Mm -hmm. step is purposeful that the snow leopard can feel the magnitude of the mountain in its paws and yet knows that it's not the mountain, but allows the mountain to carry it to where it needs to be. And that snow leopards are these very rare creatures, but when they are sighted, it is like, it, it's like a great gift. And yeah, I very read much. this and I was like that. And that has been That's essentially awesome. <laughs> where, where, where that story led me. And it, it's been very much the way that I, see myself in the way that I work on everything that I do. It's like very, I love it with purpose. Cause yeah, I could see badass in you right away and not from a place of ego, but the quality of your heart, the desire to serve the, the strength within you, you know what I mean? And, and it's like, what if we looked at everybody at their potential? It doesn't mean everyone's going to have your skills, but the person that doesn't, they have different skills and collectively we become the mosaic of light. Collectively, we create an army of light warriors an army of angels. And that's really what this is about is to kind of break the narrative that you have to be a certain way, that you have to think a certain way and group think. What if we just actually found our greatness and then we served others with it? That's where it gets magical. And that's really what I'm here to help do as well. Beautiful. Mark, I got two more questions for you before we wrap up. The first one is talking about where people can find you. If they feel inspired by this conversation, they want to be a light warrior by the time this airs, you know, it, I, I think it'll already have been going on, but where can they find you? Yeah. Where can they find out more about being on this mission and learning these skills to awaken that greatness within them? Great question. First one is, I would say website is www.soarandroar.com. That's the first one. Now that's in, it's being built as we speak. So soar and roar, it might not be up. There's a placeholder. That's number one. Number two, um, a Facebook group called light warriors. If you find me, you'll, you can then kind of link on Facebook to, to light warriors and within light warriors is where you get, have, we have a ton of free videos, trainings. We have a ton of free different ways. I do something called a seven day blitz, which is really about getting unstuck and really connecting quickly back to your purpose, your potential and your, and why you're here. And so that's your passion. So that's in there. That's free. Uh, get in the group, start seeing that and realize you, you're only alone if you choose to be. So I would say those two things um, or email me at Mark, M-A-R-C at soarandroar.com, M-A-R-C at uh, soarandroar.com. And it's not the ampersand, it's the A-N-D, and, okay? So that's where I'd, I'd say reach out there. Amazing. And my last question for you is what does it mean to you to live a liberated life? It's a great question. I would say the last thing about that is that I believe everybody has a purpose on their life. And whether that means you want to have a family and a white picket fence and that's your purpose, great. But if you do it, do it and be proud of it. You know, I have a friend of mine, he, he grew up in a certain ethnicity. And again, they only wanted one career path for him, engineer. He did that and he was miserable. And so what we did is he did that. He met, he pleased the family, but he was dying every day because he was living their purpose, not his. He had a purpose on his heart. And all of a sudden that purpose was to show people how to be the dust on top of outstanding, how to do things when you think you've done the impossible. Here's the next level. And we helped him build that, get in alignment with it. After he did that, 
and we got him into that. And when he did that, he ended up doing $2 million in his first year, doing what he loved. Now I think he's doing like 10 million a year, doing what he loves. And a liberated life to me is when you can tune out the noise of other people's expectations, society's expectations, and you can get quiet enough to hear your own purpose and feel it and know it and honor it with your action. And that, it, whatever that is for you, I'm not here to be your guru. I'm not here to tell you, you should do this. You should be vegan. You should be paleo. You should be carnivore. You should be keto. You should be whole 30. I'm not here. That's your job to figure out what resonates with you. I just want to challenge people to tune out the external noise and find your own truth. And that's really what I'm here to help people do. So that's what it means to be a liberated life is how, what much are you living your purpose? And when you do that, guys, no one needs more white bread, homogenized messaging. They need the truth. They need your purpose. They need your unique spin. And that's when you can do that, magic will align. Beautiful. Mark, thank you so much for being on the Zen Stoic Path, man. This was awesome having you here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, man. It's great to see you. And just know, Victor, how proud I am of you. And it's like, um, you know, every day you're making a difference. And it's just really phenomenal to watch. I've been watching you from afar and you're proud as hell. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> I received that totally and completely, man. My pleasure, man. It's an honor. Big love.